BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, welcome back, Internet. This is another episode of Real Psych. I am Dr. J.D. Barton, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist. And I am Dr. Joanna Witkin, and I am a cognitive neuroscientist. Real Psych is a brand new podcast where we give our completely unnecessary professional opinions on the lives, minds, and relationships in all of your favorite movies. Hey, J.D., will there be learning? Yes. Will there be science? Yes! Will there be delightfully informal conceptualizations about the minds of non-real people from two best friends who would be talking about this anyway? Not today! <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yes! Hello! Yay! Hello! We have released six episodes in one month. Is that right? Six episodes in, in a month, yeah. I, yeah, six episodes in one month. Although technically we squeaked the... <laughs> squeaked the January 31st episode in <laughs> early on not, February 1st. It wasn't not my fault. <laughs> it was not your fault. <laughs> it was, we have, uh, we've decided to expand our editing uh, team to both of yeah. us instead of just me. And so the first time that I edited it, I had weeks. That's true. <laughs> because we recorded. Yeah. So it just took, you had less than weeks. You had uh, like a day and a half. Yeah. And it took a little took, minute to learn it. It took two days. <laughs> it took two days. Yeah. And and it and it got no, out. It, and yeah, it was we got wonderful. There. We got there. It's fine. It sounded great. New microphone. I know. Who dis? I know. I got some feedback that I sound a little bit cleaner and better. Uh, feed feedback? Is that a microphone joke? LOL. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. We just lost five <laughs> listeners. <laughs> oh god. Yeah, so that's exciting. I'm still quieter than you, but, you know, we'll know. figure it out. You could just put your face right up against that. <laughs> That's going to sound little real good. Boom. No, it does. Like, right next. I think I need to get one of those filter things, too. Yeah, you can get pretty close and just don't have super plosive peas. Mm. I don't know if I do or do not. If you put your hand in front of your mouth, everybody can do this. I learned this in a linguistic anthropology class. And say pit. Pit. And then say Spit. Spit. Do you feel the difference? Yeah. So the P on pit is a plosive P, and the P on spit is a non-plosive P. Yeah, on pit it sounds, it's like more Uh-huh, air. spit. Yeah. Yep. Pit and spit. Oh my God, Isn't little that fun? lesson, little lesson. Little lesson. <laughs> I went to college, and that is what I learned there because I went to liberal arts school. So did I take a chemistry class? Heck no. I took all the chemistry classes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you were very pre-med. I took yeah. none of them. My uh, science class in college was uh, 
the history and practice of ancient astronomy. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That sounds yeah. real fun. Yeah, shout Did out to all the bloggers out there. Did you think it was astrology? Did you show up thinking it was astrology? I showed up being like, well, listen, I'm a Pisces Aquarius <laughs> rising. Um, no, I did not. I did not. Show. I knew what it was. And I learned how to use all sorts of like ancient tools for reading the night sky. Like it's, there's a tool That's... called an astrolabe. And I, at one point, could like plot for you like the trajectory of Mercury. I could, in fact, project when Mercury would be in retrograde. Amazing. Yeah, not uh, that now sounds like astrology, I know, but I it actually is astronomy. Say. I mean, here's the thing: you're, you know, these they're, things are planetary. Not, not really. They are based on real stars. Yeah. And things. Um, yes. Well, should we hop into this one? Yeah, let's do it. Let's just jump right in. So the tagline for this film, from 1991. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're like I feel like we're in the same era. We went, With our we went back. Yeah. Yeah, we went back. Uh, 1991. The tagline is somebody said get a life. So they did. <laughs> which uh, is, which is to get me. Get a life? <laughs> no, it is the least helpful tagline in the history of. I'm thinking of like something murderous. You're. Am you're, I in the right ballpark? It's a, it's a little bit of a. I, the murder of it all is not quite. It's a. Is it a thriller? Crime, no. Okay. But there's some crime. Okay. Is it funny? It's. I think it's quite funny. It is um, a a dramedy. Okay. With two huge movie stars at the time, especially 1991. Okay. Um. There is a character in it named JD. He he is not one of the leads. Uh, he has a great quote. I'm going to give you some quotes from him. Okay, yeah, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I don't know that you've seen this one. <laughs> I don't, um, yeah. So the character JD says, uh, well, I've always believed that if done properly, armed robbery doesn't have to be an unpleasant experience. Uh, <laughs> it is a film starring two women. Yeah, okay, okay. Oh, oh, is it Thelma and Louise? It is the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I've yes. seen I've seen uh, bits and pieces of this movie. I so I saw this movie for the first time in like 2019, mm-hmm. and was blown away by how like radically feminist this film was in a way that like in the 90s I was like in the early 90s. I mean, this was basically put. This started filming in the 80s. Yeah. And, like, really the way in which these women talk about themselves, talk about men, was, like, again, I uh, have been socialized as a man. So a lot of the stuff was, like, really, like, dang, women really, like, knew stuff back then about how to be feminist. <laughs> but also, the, the the real, like, point beyond the joke that I'm obviously making, though, is, like, I'm shocked that Hollywood made this film. Mm. And gave, and it was such a huge, 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 huge movie. Yeah. Uh, so, Yeah. Representing something that America wanted, so it's representing something America wanted, and then didn't touch again for thirty years. <laughs> Took a little break. <laughs> yeah, like a real blockbuster moment. That uh, yeah, I mean, Gina Davis, come on. Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon, come on. Brad Pitt. Yep. As JD. Type. Oh, that's his character's name. 
Yeah, his name is JD. Yeah, I can see the resemblance. Um, he's so hot in this. Yeah, it's like one of his early roles. It's right? Very early, yeah, yeah, very very early, and he's just like, but he's like old school eighties, early nineties hot, which is like quite skinny. Like he's yeah. not on steroids like everybody now is yeah. deeply. I I shouldn't I shouldn't assume that everyone is taking steroids, but I think the bulk of film stars these days is its own. Thing that we'll talk about on our um, body positivity podcast that Ooh. we're going to start next. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I feel like I saw the beginning of this movie, and there's something about like one of them is in a bad relationship, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that there's like a whole okay, gotcha. Um, so is it like domestic abuse? I believe so. Yeah, it's I, been a minute. Yeah. I'm remembering Yeah, domestic that a abuse bit. is certainly a big theme, but also like the ways in which two women traveling together are really in danger just by being two women throughout Ugh. the whole film. Yeah. It's a really interesting kind of view, but also like kind of they're like running from the police uh because we'll talk about it. We'll do the recap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do are the we... recap after the break. Uh, totally. But, uh, it's, I'm really excited to watch it. I think it's I a think really it's fun. A, yeah, this is a great, great choice. I really, I'm excited. I think it's If you haven't great. seen it, um, it's streaming on HBO Max. So Perfect. you can go see it. We will, uh, everybody already knows the ending of this film as, yeah. as well. Right. So we're, we're happy to, um, you know, give you the recap anyways. You know where it goes. But uh, yeah, I'm super excited to talk Yay. about it. And This uh, is a good one. Yeah. Well, that's our theme music coming right back on. <laughs> We will see you after the break. We will see you after the break. Bye-bye. Yay. Welcome back. Wow. What a pick. This, This was such a good pick. They're so... Much. There's so much. <laughs> I know. Buckle up, buttercups, because we go yeah. in. Uh, okay, recap. Let's recap uh, yeah. the film. Okay. So we enter, and we see Thelma in this kind of not great marriage. We see Louise as Yeah, a, bad marriage. A bun- to Shooter McGavin. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Happy Gilmore. <laughs> She's that, married to Shooter McGavin. That's literally what I yelled at the TV. Um, Shooter McGavin. Uh Louise yeah. is a unfulfilled waitress, and uh, they're planning a trip together somewhere to a fishing to go to fishing go to a cabin. Thelma yeah. is afraid to, like, leave leave her like ask her husband for permission. Um, for permission, yeah, he's like just kind of abusive. Emo- at least like he like just yells at her yeah. very yeah. inappropriately, just, and it's just verbally jerk. abusive. It's gross. Um, and so she decides kind of like she's not going to ask him, and she just kind of gets all her stuff together and leaves. Um, and you can tell she is itching for <laughs> some adventure. And so they go to a bar, right, off the side of the road, because Thelma's asking to go yeah, to a bar. Yeah, they go, they go to a roadside yep. bar. And uh, get some drinks. Thelma is, like, ready to party. Louise is kind of more... She's letting yep. loose because she's out. She's, she's the cat's exactly. away, so the mice will play. <laughs> the cat ran away, so... <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Louise is definitely more hesitant, reluctant, trying to keep an eye, trying to be more of, like, the responsible adult here. Um, and Thelma, you know, is kind of acting immaturely, gets kind of caught up with this guy. Um, they're dancing on the dance floor. 
she's getting she's having drinks yeah drunk. she's getting drunk she's getting real drunk um they end up going out as is her right to is, do oh my god we're gonna get to that but yeah i know <laughs> but uh also we should say now trigger warning within listening to this 100%. for sexual assault and for yes. suicide let's just name that it's Selma and Louise it's very famous the the yeah. ending of this movie but I do want to give the trigger warning for those right now if that is not your your dish this week we will see you next yeah. week um but otherwise for those continuing yeah no sorry. it's okay so as we as we proceed and I actually knew about the ending but didn't know about the sexual assault yeah. the beginning sort of the yeah. the impetus so they go outside. To get, she wants to get a breath of fresh air or whatever. This guy She's, turns yeah. into a maniac, like, just is trying to assault her. Um, Doesn't take no for is, an answer. Yeah, completely inappropriate. She is very clearly, like, saying no and, like, not wanting yeah. any part of it. Um, and he is basically, like, assaulting her. And Louise... He's yeah. assaulting her. Yeah, right, I mean, he, he literally hits her oh, in the yeah. face. Like, he's God, assaulting yeah. her. And uh, <clears throat> Louise, then you see Louise... Uh, put a gun to his neck and threaten him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, try like, threaten him so they're going to go, like, walk away and get out of that situation. The guy continues to antagonize them and taunt them to a, where, to a point where Louis kind of loses it and ends up shooting him and killing him. And so now this is a... One yeah, shot right I mean, in the heart. Yeah. Um, so now this is a, like, pe- like women on the run... <laughs> film women on the run uh, so the rest yeah. of it is really them trying to get to mexico and trying to like escape this uh thing that happened and uh yeah i think do you want to fill in some of the rest of the <laughs> yeah so i mean they they go on the run uh they decide to move to leave to mexico because they they have no proof that that this man assaulted them they don't believe that the justice system would rule right. in their favor in terms of self-defense because she was dancing mm-hmm. with him. She and so that seems like that seems like yeah. consent to a lot of people. She was asking for it kind of stuff. And so it becomes this kind of buddy, you know, dramedy where these two women are on the road and they kind of get into more and more mm-hmm. trouble and they get in deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, as the police are slowly trying to you know, catch them, they commit an armed robbery, they blow up a semi-truck when a guy is, like, is, like, catcalling them and and just harassing them, like, really intensely. Um, Thelma gets uh, a little bit of fun with a very attractive Brad Pitt. And then they he steals all their money. Yeah, with JD, (laughs) that's right. Famously attractive people, those JDs. Exactly. Brad, me, and Zach Braff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but he, uh, and so they, um, finally it all comes down to a standoff in the very end, and the two of them decide instead of going into the police because they know that they're going to probably have to face, you know, the electric chair or, or the death penalty or at least incarceration forever, yep. they decide to hold hands and drive off a cliff into the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. in one of the most famous and and sort of uh, iconic movie moments. Yeah. Very notably as well, you should say, the film ends with their car still in the air. Mm-hmm. So they haven't actually died at the end of the film, yeah. which I think is an important 
kind of point that you can wonder right. what happened to them. I mean, the assumption is not not great. Yeah. But they chose, these two women choose freedom over oppression, yep. essentially, yep. at the end. Yeah, it was, oh, it was so good. It's a, an incredible movie, and it holds up perfectly. It really does. I, I, I was reading online, though, like, when it came out in 1991, uh, yeah. it got a lot of flack for its, quote-unquote, negative portrayal of men. Yeah. People are very, like, upset about that at the time. I mean, there's only one or two good men in the whole thing. Who's... Three, if you count that, like, weed-smoking bicyclist. Right. <laughs> um, Harvey Keitel. The one, mm-hmm. the one cop does believe them, and he wants to protect them, and he believes, he can see that they're getting themselves in more trouble, but you, you know that he doesn't believe them to be cold-blooded killers. Yeah, and he definitely, uh, I guess we should name, too, that there's, it's revealed at some point throughout this journey that Louise has uh, been sexually assaulted in the past. In Texas, in Texas, and she left Texas yes. because of it, Does not and she speak won't. About Texas. And you can see, I mean, Susan Sarandon. First of all, the acting in this incredible. movie is incredible. Yeah. They both were nominated for Oscars. Mm-hmm. The uh, screenwriter, who is a woman, mm-hmm. won. Amazing. Which I, it was funny because I saw that it was a Ridley Scott film, yeah. and I was like, "Did he write this?" Because like to for a man to have written this movie right. seems impossible. Right. Like it is such a female perspective yeah. on harassment on rape culture on misogyny on oppression like it is such a a female lens yeah and so I actually credit to Ridley Scott for really upholding that Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is really impressive um the screenwriter won an Oscar they both were nominated I mean it was nominated for a million for like eight or nine Oscars it won one and I do think the screenplay just the story of this is so I good I just love to I mean you really see is kind of the story is unraveling and even their their behavior gets more erratic they're like racking yeah. up these crimes and even through that you see the freedom that they're yes. experiencing the empowerment and ownership yeah. that they're taking especially Thelma like taking over uh you know they feel more like alive than ever right it's, liberated it's liberated like it's it's really interesting to see kind of that journey for them even though yeah. like, things are just going wrong all around them they I mean, are making bad. mistakes left and right and yet yeah. they are just becoming more powerful and you know comfortable in in their womanhood and personhood you know like it, it's just yeah it's such an interesting emotional journey too you know mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think it's it's incredible and and so i think you know, in terms of their behavior, maybe we'll get into the psych of this a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I watched this and tried to take a bit of of a diagnostic framework. Mm. And to be honest, I don't think that this is mental illness. I like in in any way, shape, or form. No PTSD. So I actually, so I think technically, what I would qualify this as is. Um, acute stress okay so it's you you have to be 30 days or more in order for it to be post-traumatic stress and so in acute stress you sort of hit that like panic mode you have so you could have a lot of the symptoms of ptsd but without the 
timeline, about- right? Because we don't we don't get thirty days. So Susan Sarandon, yeah. maybe she refuses to speak of her trauma, and so we don't actually see the ways in which trauma is impacting her life we know that she chooses not to talk about it but we don't know if she experiences hyper arousal um re-experiencing moments if she has um avoidant behaviors due to i mean we know she left texas but it, it if the avoidant behaviors aren't impacting her life negatively then they can't really count as disordered behaviors mm. so i mean she certainly I'm, does seem avoidant in the sense that she won't talk about it yes she is but enough, but enough, you know, essentially is she enough to technically meet all the oh, criteria right. and For qualify sure. diagnostically? Sure. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. And I also like, I mean, and I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast already. I'm always really hesitant to name something as a disordered post-traumatic stress response, just because like telling somebody that what they're doing is mentally ill right. because they've been through something horrible. Right. It's like, yeah, you've got fight or flight and you're choosing flight. I, I, I don't blame you. Right. You know, I, I don't really... This it, there's It's coping, regardless of whether it, it's adaptive or maladaptive. I mean, you know, like, it's coping. It's coping. And, you know, they say, they, they said the line at one point, they're like, I've never felt, I feel awake. I've never felt so awake. Mm-hmm. Which, technically, if I'm in, in an intake with somebody for therapy and they say that, my immediate thought is mania. Right. But I don't think this is a manic episode. I don't think... I think that this is a stress response, Mm -hmm. but also I think it is a psychological reaction to a lifetime of oppression where you have a choice to either continue to submit Mm -hmm. or to, you know, in a way, have rather antisocial behaviors, but essentially break free from the expectations of the world and the, the, the binding that they've, that they've been in as women. Yeah. I did, I did look at different types of coping models though, as it relates to post-traumatic stress. Um, and you know, it kind of brought me to, uh, approach versus avoidance coping. Uh Um, and so approach coping is really, you know, person is, dealing with the stressor, they believe that they have the resources and capacity to deal with the stressor, so they kind of actively use strategies to confront and emotion, like uh, confront the stressor or the emotional response to the stressor. There's avoidance coping, which is, you know, a person appraises this trauma or the stressor and doesn't think they, they, they don't believe that they have uh, the resources or capacity to handle it. And so they engage in these other kinds of behaviors that are avoidant. Um, there's there's a lot of different ones, and I don't know if you like know more than the ones that I just like <laughs> was researching, but um, you know, there's just general avoidance, there's fantasizing, there's mm-hmm. su- emotional suppression. So yeah. just uh, kind of willing yourself, like shutting down or trying to push out thoughts about the trauma um and actually there's studies on emotional suppression as an emotion regulation strategy that is mm-hmm. not uh it's maladaptive and it yeah. actually can increase sympathetic nervous activity so increase mm-hmm. heart rate increase these things in this fight or flight response cortisol and it actually leads to hyperattention to the stressor so even yeah. it's a paradoxical kind of uh thing that's happening where even though you're trying very hard to push it away you're actually increasing your attention to it. Um, and I also looked at 
a study that uh, looked at risk or not uh, predictors of whether a person uh-huh. uses like approach or avoidance coping. Oh, interesting. Um, and so these other kind of uh, social and psychological kind of factors, one is self-blame. So if they feel mm. like they were mm-hmm. responsible for this happening to them. Um, Super common. If they feel stigma around th- their victimization um, and responses from other people around them, victim blaming, minimizing by others, uh, all of those can lead to like an increased risk of choosing avoidance coping strategies. I thought a lot about like filling in the blanks of Susan Sarandon's past mm. of just like, uh, and, and Harvey Keitel was aware of this uh her past yeah, so there must way. have been some sort of yeah, legal ramification, really or at least that elaborate on elaborate. Um, but which I kind of love, yeah, because I think like it lets her story be the story of so many women. Totally. Where I mean, like twenty five percent of women experience sexual assault just in college. Yeah. Twenty five percent of women experience sexual assault. Twenty five percent of women who go to college right. experience sexual assault during college. And I've seen, and it's something like. Sorry. 30% of women throughout the lifetime or something like that. It's, it's baffling. It's insane. Yeah, and in among those women who have experienced like sexual assault, uh, one of the statistics I found was 44 to 49% of them experience post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. afterwards. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. almost half. It's just wild. Um, and so, yeah, I was trying to think of like, Susan Sarandon's past and filling in those blanks, and I... The way that she talks about it or um, doesn't talk about it uh-huh. leads me to believe that it was not something that was handled well at the time that it happened. Right. And perhaps, you know, victim blaming or people not believing her or because even what she says to Thelma after it happens is like, no one will believe us. Uh, no yeah. one will believe your story. Like you can see that it's in, in, informed by her past or at least yeah could very well be i mean you can see it in her Absolutely. eyes when she has that gun on him mm-hmm. gosh she's such a good uh, actor yeah, she's, she's so amazing. incredible yeah and so they both are exquisite yeah it was oh, so good but yeah so i was really interested in these kind of like avoidance coping behaviors because that's what i saw mm-hmm. with susan Sarandon totally and just like filling in those those blanks you know I also was interested in Thelma's kind of processing of things because you see you see some interesting behaviors and I want to get your thoughts on it. So, you know, one yeah. is she's drinking a lot. Um, yes. A lot, a lot. It almost like comically, so like she's just, like every time they stop, she's like getting more alcohol. Um, and, you know, there is relationships between substance abuse or substance use and post-traumatic stress. Um, right. You know, there's uh, one kind of correlational study that looked at uh, women and women who are like problem drinkers in particular uh, often have like fewer. There's a correlation between them having fewer resources, like less education, less income. What do you mean by problem drinkers? Problem drinkers are people who uh drink alcohol in a way that it's like negatively impacting their life Neg- okay not drinking alcohol because they have problems right no no but, no, but have it's... problems because they exactly. drink alcohol exactly yeah um so a relationship between them having fewer resources like educationally income wise um and increased use of avoidance coping strategies 
mm-hmm. and lower levels of just social support. Right. I mean, it makes sense. Alcohol in its way is an avoidant exactly. coping strategy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she. so Gina Davis is an interesting thing because we know that she's sort of developmentally young. Yeah, so that's another thing. She got married when she was 18. <laughs> totally. We know that she has been, I mean, so she went from being someone's child, essentially to being someone's wife, who is basically his ward. I mean, she really works for him in a way that he's he controls her in such an intense way. Yeah. And so I think, like, psychologically, she's kind of breaking out. Yeah. It's... I, I was curious. Like, I looked into identity development, right? And, like, Erickson's mm-hmm. psychosocial development theory, what's uh-huh. happening in adolescence. So we know that she gets married at 18. Yeah. We know that she has been in a relationship with Daryl for four years prior to that. She names yeah. that. So we can know that, like, she has been in a relationship since she was 14. And that is in this kind of stage five adolescent uh, area of this. Identity or identity confusion. Identity versus confusion. Yeah. So this is a critical period where adolescents are, you know, searching for a sense of self and personal identity, um, exploring, like, personal values, also exploring, like, their place in society. Um, Confusion is really, like, a result of failing to... Form yeah. that cohesive identity through those explorations. For, for those listening, Erickson is a very famous developmental psychologist who created basically these different stages of life where in each stage there's sort of this dilemma mm-hmm. the, where it's like identity versus identity confusion or intimacy versus isolation, uh, generativity versus stagnation. So there's in, in every phase of life you're, you're, you have to sort of resolve to one of those two things. Otherwise, right. you will be developmentally stunted. Right. And so... And so the teenage one is this identity versus identity confusion. Yep. And then I was also looking at studies about marriage and identity. Um, Mm. And so, you know, there's a lot of, like, research saying that, you know, marriage uh, in general, like, improves self-esteem, self-worth, like, sense of belonging, right? There's social support inherent in marriage, right? Like, uh, uh, I feel like I need to name, though, like, a lot of the – Research that I did is very, like, heteronormative and cisgender. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. You know, there's a lot, especially, like, the marriage ones that are older, was very mm-hmm. much, like, women leaving their husband. Like, it's just super, super blatant about, like, uh, describing one very specific aspect of relationships. But um, they did, there was, there are people who are talking about, you know, marriage being associated with a process of depersonalization. Um, and so really mm. going from a singular identity to a joined identity that can be uh, really like tied to their being in this marriage and there are different types uh, of those identities uh, that they talked about specifically in women. So mm-hmm. there's like an anchored identity uh, in that the marriage uh, integrated different elements of their identity and they maintain their sense of individual individuality. Uh, there's defined identity describing uh, described as being immersed in the married relationship and family life, but still felt like aspects of their own identity were secondary to the marriage. Um, mm. There are restricted identities, so you know women being frustrated by the limitations marriage placed on them, and there are like confused right. identities, women lacking self confidence and a sense of competence, which were not being improved by the marriage. And so, you know, there are these identity themes. Uh, that are happening 
when people get married, and I was really interested in this depersonalization part, at a critical period where you are trying to define your own identity. Yeah. And so to me, that was really, I think, the crux of what's happening with Thelma is she did not have the opportunity to kind of seal that like individual identity. And she was already kind of conjoining her identity with this marriage. And so that is mm-hmm. perhaps why she was not able to like continue personal growth or she's a bit stagnated like at that stage. Totally. I think that makes absolute sense. I think she's been forced to be in sort of the third the third one of this, right? Where you can see that she is frustrated yeah. with the, the, the binding yep. of her marriage. And she has... A, a small sense of herself and her independence that is sort of reflected to her in Louise, right. right? She's got this friend that she's like, I like you, you like me, you're a safe space, I trust you, you know, you're you're my person, yeah. more so than her husband. Although, do you think, I mean, she's seeking someone to take care of her, you know, like, is it, Louise is just like a benevolent surrogate for, you know, like she... She's still, their dynamic is that Louise is very much taking care of Thelma. Yeah, yes, I I think so, but I think it's like a, an, like a big sister more than, than like a parental sort of guardian type relationship mm, okay. where I think it, it feels like um, being led by the hand, not by a leash gotcha. kind of thing, gotcha. you know, where, where she's, because, and I say that because she when when louise is saying like okay maybe let's not drink too much or okay whatever and thelma's like no i'm doing this i'm on vacation like she does assert herself within that relationship in a way that she never does with her husband she's entirely avoidant she chooses to just not tell him and to deal with the consequences later Mm -hmm. um man is he a piece of work uh i i mean i feel like they a lot of the men in this movie felt like just clowns (laughs) clowns <laughs> how they were portrayed like daryl they're is children just, yeah a complete mess they're pure to, to be very, very freudian they're all id right they're yes. all this like impulse like pleasure principle yeah drive within them with like the exception of harvey Keitel. yeah and the the nice guy although even the nice guy that that susan uh brings susan sarandon brings to, to help them out and Jimmy, yeah. yeah, who comes and brings I didn't know the money. Him. I wasn't sure about that. Even that, you you feel the ways in which all the men in this film use women to sort of elevate their own status, mm-hmm. to to be um, sort of somewhat owned, right? Even in that, like when she asks for his help, he tries to marry her, right? And she's like, "I this wasn't the time." And she was like, "Remember when?" You know, you told me you loved me, and I asked you what color are my eyes, yeah. and you didn't know. And, you know, like, I mean, this reminds me, too, of just, like, this patriarchal savior complex, right? Like, Jimmy feels like he has to save yeah. her. And even Harvey Keitel, which, as, you know, I'm of seeing course. through this, it's very a, a, a nice, like, I feel like he is uh, empathetic to Thelma and Louise, but it is a patronizing uh, oh relationship. yeah! Like he calls them girls constantly. These poor little constantly. women. These poor little girls need our help, and they're helpless out there. And you know, very. I was thinking about the exact same thing, and I was thinking, and and when I first realized, you know, several years ago, when it was pointed out to me that like we call adult women girls mm-hmm. often, and I was like, in my head, I was like, well, that's because there's not like a good equivalent to like to guys 
because nobody would say gals. And then I was like, but you would never say boys. Correct. You would never say boy. Although some people do like refer to people they're dating as like a boy in a way that I'm, I'm always like, mm. yeah, like who's your boy? <laughs> Maybe let's, let's put some, let's put some agency on this, this person. Yeah. Uh, unless it's the gay spelling of boy, B-O-I, which is very early 2000s. Yeah, in skater. that case. Yeah. I'm a skater. skater although <laughs> Avril trying to take back B-O-I was a little homophobic and rude. How really? dare she? Yeah. Not actually, but it is like a, a term that was very much embraced within the gay community. Gotcha. I mean, she, I think she spelled it with an I, just like she spelled skater with an eight. Like it's right. just her trying She's to just be like, like bad at spelling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen. An innocent mistake. The next, next week we're going to talk about the Canadian education system. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. Um, you know, so the thing that I found myself really drawn to looking at within this, it, it sort of folds right into what you're saying is feminist psychological theory. Mm. Which, did you look into this? Nope. Oh, great. Great. Well, let me explain feminism to you then. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm going to write this down. Please. Um, <laughs> I'll talk slowly. Uh, so, so feminist psychological theory is uh, essentially a theory that is based on understanding mental health, not from um, a diagnostic lens, but from sort of a, a broader sociocultural sort of locus of control. So essentially, um, f- female mental health is much more widely an issue of culture uh, and the culture of oppression and misogyny. And so I kind of saw this as like, uh, you know, as a therapist, like, okay, what what might I do in terms of like the the needs of these women if they're sitting in the chair in my office and again uh I do identify as a feminist therapist I am also uh you know assigned male at birth and and phenotypically a man in mm-hmm. 99% of the ways and so uh there are lots of other people who are m- much greater experts on this but the the thing about uh feminist therapy is it looks for, at like a liberation framework as sort mm-hmm. of the mechanism change. So the idea is not to um, shame yourself into working through your depression. The idea is to sort of sit in a space of empathy and really focus on understanding why you feel so depressed and and the sort of locus of control sits in you to, um, to reframe and sort of understand your trauma. And so there are techniques that you use like um you you view symptoms as a communication so a symptom is just like pain right it's communicating some sort of issue and you don't look at the symptom as the problem you start to try to identify the issue that's causing the symptom mm-hmm. uh another strategy within the, within this is something called power analysis where the therapist and the client work together it is a very equitable and like equal framing where the psychologist may be the expert on the material, but the client is the expert on her experience, right? right? And so you come together as a collaborator. And so in power analysis, you work to examine the ways in which gender and powers differ and how that contributes to um, a lack of power in all non-male genders. Yeah. Um, another thing is called assertiveness training, um, which is you know about learning how to name what you want and speak clearly Oof. about it. 
I need I that. know. <laughs> it's 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 really wild it's, the ways yeah. in which we don't allow uh, women culturally to speak up. Yeah, I mean this like to take an aside like about yeah. uh, dog training. <laughs> I have a okay. very difficult dominant dog, and my trainer, uh, you know, she was saying I have to be more assertive, right, and be more like, and that's how you assert dominance, right? You be assertive, not aggressive. And mm-hmm. she kind of anecdotally in her students uh, sees that with men when she says to be more assertive, they often go straight to aggressive. Yeah. And with women, they're very afraid to go to assertive because they think it means aggression. And mm-hmm. so it's this hu- she sees this huge gender gap in having like how, uh, you know, male and female identifying uh, owners like are able to, to train their dogs. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's even, it's even in our linguistic culture. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, again, I think I talked about this last time. I took a linguistic anthropology class in college. This keeps coming up. Yeah. Uh, I took a linguistic anthropology class and we talked about the differences in male and female speech patterns and men use uh, a system of speech that is called report as Mm. in they, they name the thing and women, use a system of speech called rapport, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, where they talk uh, about things rather than to things. And so the number of words that women use to communicate an idea is longer. The number of sentences that end in a question as though they're trying to engage in a dialogue about what they are saying is much more common. And so in actually, and this is uh, international that all in all cultures that men use report and women use report with the exception of the natives to Madagascar where it's reversed. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's super interesting. Um, I think, yeah, that, I mean, that's totally true. I think even in, uh, well, I, you tell me, but the pauses yeah. and, you know, clarifying are like these, what are they called? Ums and likes. What are those words called? There's like interjectives. Yeah. I think, are there gender differences there that, you know, uh, I'm not sure about the ums and ahs. I do know because research is me search that a lot of what we think about as like gay voice and gay talking is mm-hmm. when we do like a pitch analysis. Like gay men don't necessarily speak higher. Mm-hmm. It's that they talk like women. So interesting. So my gay voice is actually not a particularly high pitch, but it is womanly. Right. And it always has been. So as a child, I would, you know, always when I'd answer the phone, people would think I was my mom or my sisters or things like that. Like I Mm -hmm. speak like a girl. And that is because I use rapport style, like the rapport style of speaking. That is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So feminist, the, the, and one of the last, uh, techniques used in feminist therapy is reframing. And reframing does not mean just looking on the bright side. It means taking like a community psychology approach to understand the interplay between the issues you have and the local and broader communities to understand mm. how they influence actions. And so this this feminist theory, unsurprisingly, sort of started to come out in like the 60s, the 70s, yeah. 80s. And uh, there's been a much more powerful and really important movement toward black feminist therapy because white feminism is of course the loudest kind of feminism um 
And, you know, and white feminism, of course, is prioritizing female identity over racial identity rather than using a more intersectional view. Mm -hmm. Um, White feminism is also largely responsible for movements like the trans-exclusionary radical feminist or TERF movements. Um, There's also a a movement um, called Mujerista psychology, which is rather than, which is looking at like a very like, Latin American machismo understanding yeah. uh, and sort of how to understand the, the unique Latin American experience of uh, feminine oppression and of course, and racial oppression and, and all of that. And so um, there's, a, there's a lot of movement to really name that, uh, again, white feminism is not enough. But I, I, the thing I really like about feminist theory and feminist therapy is, and maybe this is horrible and co-opting, but I really think it applies to anyone racially gender, you know, anyone who is a, a racial minority, gender minority, sexual minority, dis- disabled. Like, a, there's so many ways in which understanding the systems of oppression and how they impact your mental health first and foremost is absolutely is so key. So I might I might be stealing that, but maybe I can lean on my homosexuality to uh, to give myself credit. There you my go. white my white gayness. <laughs> you know. That reminds me of, like, this again is another aside, but imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this, like, article in the Harvard Business Review about how imposter syndrome is a thing we ascribe to women, um, that it is an internally, like, derived uh, sense of not feeling like you're, you belong in a space, right, and being intimidated and feeling like you are not qualified to be mm-hmm. in a room with these other people, yet it is not the the blame is not placed off of the like systems that have been designed right. to be for white men right and so women don't feel welcome there because white men do not make them feel welcome there exactly and yet this imposter syndrome is ascribed to the women who are experiencing it as opposed to the systems which uh created it and i've yeah. never thought about it like that oh yeah i mean it's wild i mean there's so much data on like the social psychology of the halo effect in terms of like beauty when it comes to men versus women where like attractive men are seen as more intelligent attractive Mm -hmm. women are seen as less intelligent Mm -hmm. like just this like nightmarish unconscious and and often conscious decisions of like well do you want to have a family or do you want to focus on this company which would never right. of course be asked of a man right. um i mean in therapy in general like the the history of psychology is deeply misogynistic i mean one of the uh earliest psychological diagnoses is something called hysteria which yep. is literally think of the word hysterectomy it is based on a it's saying a uterus right like mm-hmm. a woman is hormonally crazy yeah and the and there are all of these like incredible cases in fact we should watch one of these great old movies or like a like a period piece about women who would have like fainting spells and have all of this yeah. which is essentially like the result of just traumatic oppression mm-hmm. where they were so confined that they would essentially mentally snap I mean, and some of like them would have fainting right? physical like- yeah they would have phys- they would have uh uh, fits of paralysis mm-hmm. muteness like just all of these like things that are so unbelievable what what a, the just blatant oppression could do but the only framing that anyone had for this was to be like well woman troubles right what's wrong with her yeah what's wrong with her and so um yeah so i think the thing in in this film what we're actually seeing is almost this like f- feminist psychological journey of these yeah. women starting to really see that they have been harmed 
mm-hmm. by this system and refusing to allow the system that has harmed them to continue to control them in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's yeah. body autonomy. It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's incredible. It's so yeah. incredible. Even until their last moments, they are still, ma- they are still in charge, right? Yeah. Yes. And even they, they show and, and they do kiss right before they mm-hmm. go off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot of people were up in arms and were upset about this and saying that it's like this like lesbian movie. And I don't think that it's a lesbian no. narrative in any way. I think that they are saying they're choosing each other over the world. They're yeah. choosing each other over everything. They'd yes. rather be free together than, you know, than not free apart. Right. And and if being together is only 10 more minutes, they want that 10 more minutes of freedom. Yeah. Oh, this movie was so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so oh good. Oh, my goodness. Uh. Uh, yeah, so that's what I got on feminist therapy. I, I think it. for those listening, like, I highly recommend asking your therapist if they you know, are willing to work from like a feminist perspective and really work to understand this. And, and again, I think generally just a culturally affirming perspective in, in whatever your experience is. Um, I think it's really cool and really foundational and, uh, anyone who advertises themselves as a feminist therapist, I think is doing cool work. I love it. Yeah. That's great. It's fun. Is that all we got? (laughs) Is that all we got? Is that all we got? Is that all we got? (laughs) That's all, folks. <laughs> well, you hear our glorious outro music hopping on this little bandwagon. I have been Dr. J.D. Barton. And I have been Dr. Joanna Witkin. And this has been Real Psych. Follow us on Instagram. Leave Follow us, us at Real Psych, please. <laughs> Tell your friends. Yes. Tell your friends. We've had... So many amazing people downloading, so many amazing people engaging. Please continue to do so. And really and truly, tell tell one friend this week. Just one. Do yourself a favor. Tell one friend. It would be amazing. Do ourselves do, a favor. Do ourselves a favor. <laughs> uh, we love you. Uh, we will see you all next week. Yay. Bye. <laughs>